The scripture reading today is Luke 7, verses 34 to 50. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed him with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he has canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You give me no kiss, but from the time I've come in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. Morning. Great. Um, I mentioned last week uh, just how much uh, I love everything Christmas time. Um, trees, fairy lights, um, reindeer, films, games around the fire. Love it all. Um, but um, I think at the very top of my list of things I love um, is food and drink. Anybody in that agree with me there? Um, my, my favorite memories... Uh, not just of Christmas, but really any time, is uh, sitting around a table uh, with family, some of your closest friends, um, that spread of cheese and charcuterie and crisps and um, just, just talking with dear friends. Uh, you know, those kind of conversations that um, kind of go from uh, really deep, maybe even tears, and then moments later, your like, stomach hurts because you're laughing so much. Like those kind of moments uh, are... Uh, the sweetest kind of moments for me. Um, and um, Jesus would agree. Um, Jesus, uh, his, so much of his life and his ministry was centered around a table, um, eating and drinking. Um, the, the, uh, this morning we're going to continue our Advent series. We've, we've given it that title, The Son of Man uh, Came. Um, if you don't know, the Son of Man title is referring to Jesus uh, coming as the Messiah, the one who's going to come and redeem his people. Um, and we're, we're basically looking at the reasons how and why the Son of Man came uh, into our world. Uh, last week, we, we kind of covered the, the umbrella reason uh, for his coming uh, in Luke 19, verse 10. Uh, the sole reason he was sent by the Father, he says, is the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, so Jesus has come to seek, he's come to pursue, he's coming to, to find those whom he loves and has lost. Um, and, and not just to find which is missing, but to save them, uh, to, to deliver them from the wrath that is to come, to bring them salvation uh, freely and joyfully. Um, and, and we looked at uh, who it is that he is seeking and saving. It's not just, it's not those who have their act together. It's not those who have a cleaned up life. Uh, it's not those who are respectable or moral at all. Um, no, he, he comes not for the righteous, but for sinners. 
um, for absolute moral failures. Uh, he seeks and he saves the rejects, the traitors, the sinners, the outcasts. And that's who Zacchaeus was. Um, he was at the very bottom of the moral ladder of his society. Um, that's who Rahab was. She was a prostitute, uh, not much higher on the moral ladder than the tax collector. It's those kinds of people that, that Jesus has come to invite in and to bring salvation. Um, and that's what we see all through the four Gospels. You see foreshadows of it in the Old Testament with Rahab. Um, and that's what we'll see again this morning. Um, and so, if last week we got why Jesus has, has come um, to seek and to save the lost, the outcast, uh, this morning we get more of the, the how he goes about pursuing them. Um, and over and over again throughout the Gospels, we see the main way Jesus brings his message to the outcast is around a table, eating and drinking with them. Um, the gospel writer Luke in chapter 7 verse 34 said, the son of man has come. That's Advent. He, he's come from heaven into our world and he has come eating and drinking. Um, that's really fascinating uh, that, that he's put that in there. And, and Luke isn't talking about a subsistence kind of eating and drinking. Like we all come eating and drinking, right? We all come with this need to, uh, for, for food and drink to live, but that's not what Luke is saying. He says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. So, so Jesus was um, seriously into eating and drinking, uh, so much so that his enemies accuse him of doing it in excess. Um, earlier in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees said to him, the disciples of John, that they, they fast and, and they pray, um, so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but Jesus, yours, eat and drink. Um, Jesus spent much of his time eating and drinking. Um, it, it's, it's often said about Jesus uh, it, throughout the Gospels. You either see him on the way to a meal, at a meal, or just leaving a meal. Uh, he, he's always at a meal. He's always at a party, eating and drinking with sinners. This was Jesus' primary way of pursuing the outcast. Um, his mission strategy for his time on earth was a long meal that kind of lasted into the evening. Um, he did evangelism, he did discipleship around a table with grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a jug of wine. Um, English pastor Tim Chester, he wrote a book called A Meal with Jesus. We did a series on this about five years ago, so some of this will be familiar uh, to you this morning. Um, he wrote this, he said, the meals of Jesus represent something bigger. They represent a new kingdom. They represent a new outlook, a new reality. But they also give that new reality substance. Jesus' meals are not just symbols. They're also application. They're not just pictures of the kingdom. They're the real thing in action. The meals just aren't just ideas. They're not just theories. They are actual so social occasions that represent his kingdom on earth. So they represent God's kingdom, but they're also the way of the kingdom, um, so hopefully this morning, you'll get both of those. You, you, we'll be able to see the gospel more clearly and, and push that deeper into our, our hearts and our lives. And hopefully we'll get a tangible way to live, um, a, a real simple way to bring that kingdom of God into our communities. So that's basically the two goals for every single sermon you'll hear at Village, right? Um, see and understand the gospel better, who Jesus is, what he did for you, and then how does that apply to your life? What is living out that new identity that he has given you actually look like in your lives? And today you get that exactly. So um, let me pray first one more time and then we'll look at this Jesus who dines with outcasts. Um, uh, Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us while we were sinners. You, you loved us, you, you poured out your love for us while we were outcast, while we were actually enemies, um, but you sent your son to, to be near us, to seek us, to save us, to draw so close and to bring us to you. And what a scandalous story this is. I pray you'd help us to see that this morning. Um, may, it, uh, may it surprise us in a, in a fresh way this morning. Um, may it affect us, may it change us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so hopefully you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter seven. 
Um, as usual, we'll need a bit of context to be able to understand what's happening here. Um, because I'm guessing this is a meal that's going to be different than most of the meals you're going to go to after you're, you're finished here this morning. And w- what Luke is uh, presenting us here is this meal that reflects what's called the Greco-Roman Symposium. It's basically a meal that's extended by, by this discussion, uh, this extended discussion. And, and it's clear that um, this is happening at the home of a man called Simon. Uh, this isn't Simon Peter. This is Simon who's a Pharisee. Um, he's most likely a rich man. Uh, and the homes at the time of Jesus, especially the large ones, were, um, they included these semi-public areas. Um, this would be different than the culture that we live. And if, if I looked out my front window and I saw uh, my neighbor, much less a stranger, standing in my garden, I'd, I'd be a little surprised. I'd maybe go outside and see what was happening. Um, th- they'd have rooms that would open up into a courtyard that outsiders were welcome to come into. And, and an event, a meal like this one, um, where a high-profile guest, which Jesus was, he was quite famous at the time, um, it, it would mean visitors could, could gather in the courtyard to see what was happening and to kind of listen in to uh, the conversation and to, to hear what was being talked about. Um, people could easily come in off the streets to uh, pay their respects to the homeowner. Um, even the poor might be able to hang around and, and wait for maybe some, some leftovers, some scraps from the table. Um, it, it was a, a, a quite a public occasion. We live in a very private community. This was very public. And Luke describes essentially a gate crashing. He's, he's essentially describing a, a party crasher of this meal by this anonymous woman. Um, she comes right out of the shadows and, and right into the center of this picture. And we're told who this woman was, not by her name, but what she had done in her past. She was described as a woman of the city. That doesn't mean that she's a woman from, that's native to the place that this meal is happening. Um, it, it means what you think it means. Um, it, it, she, we might call her a woman of the streets, she, she was known by her occupation, most likely as a sex worker. Um, if, if people saw her, they'd say, there she goes. You know who she is. You know what she does for a living, right? Um, and, and every culture, even ours, has, a, has like a social ladder, right? And at the very bottom of their, uh, the very bottom rung of their social ladder were tax collectors and prostitutes, um, and over and over and over again, we see Jesus befriending and eating with these sorts of people, these moral outcasts. And I want to pause for a moment and read a couple passages from, that are kind of leading up to this story. And because this woman comes in and she does something extraordinary. And these uh, passages, I think, are going to help us understand her actions. Um, chapter 5, verse 1 says, On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, to hear the word of God. So, so Jesus has these crowds coming to him. He's, he's very famous at this time. These crowds are coming to hear him preach the word of God. In chapter 5, verse 12, says, while Jesus was in one of the cities. So he, he's, he's a missionary. He's going from city to city preaching uh, the word of God, the, the coming of the kingdom. Chapter 6, verse 17 says, And a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon came to hear him. So, so he's not just pulling a crowd from where he is. People are coming from all over to hear Jesus preach, to see him in action. Chapter 7, verse 9, And turning to the crowd, that's that crowd who, who, who came in, uh, Jesus says, I tell you who hear me. So he is preaching to them this message for them to hear Um, Chapter 7, verse 11, another large crowd went with him. So they're not just coming to hear him, they're following him. And then there's this scene that happens, you can look at it in chapter 7, verse 16, which isn't too um, far before this this meal that we're seeing today. It says this, it says, uh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 11, says, soon after he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of that town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the casket and the the bearers stood still. And he said to the dead guy, young man, 
I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Like, what an incredible scene for this large crowd to see. So what happened? Well, verse 16 says, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This is God in the flesh, come to be with his people, and they recognized that. And the report about him spread through the whole country of Judea and all the surrounding country. You see what's happening with Jesus here? What we see in these statements is Luke is describing the way in which the the word of God is spreading in its influence. These large crowds are surrounding Jesus. They're listening to him preach the good news, seeing him perform these miraculous things. They're watching him dine with sinners. And if you're like me, it's easy to sometimes read passages like these and not kind of read and imagine between the lines. Um, have you ever stopped and, and wondered who were in these crowds? Because crowds are made up of individuals, right? That sounds obvious, but sometimes it's important to point out the obvious. Um, there's no crowd without a number of individuals in the crowd. And we see these crowds that are gathered. There are individuals who hear and they see Jesus. And there are people who respond to his call to faith. There are people who are embracing his offer of love and forgiveness. I'm I'm mentioning this because when we come to this story and we hear about this woman who comes in and she anoints Jesus' feet, she bathes his feet with her tears, and she dries his feet with her hair, it should cause us to ask the question, I wonder when this woman came to faith. And because she's clearly not converted in this incident, uh, we don't believe for a moment that as a result of her doing these things for Jesus, that because of the strength of her good deeds, that he says, okay, you've done some nice things for me here. I'm going to do something nice for you. Your sins are forgiven. That's not the gospel. That's not, that would turn everything that we've, we've learned about the gospel on its head, right? So what are we seeing here? Uh, I think what we are seeing here is her love is an expression of her awareness of what Jesus has come to mean to her. What we're seeing here is a response. These are the actions of someone who have, has been demolished by the truth of the gospel. This is someone who is responding to the lavish grace that Jesus offers to someone even as filthy as her. Was she in one of those large crowds that went and saw Jesus? Was she at that funeral procession that saw that young man be raised from the dead? Showed that Jesus showed compassion on that widow. Was she part of that group that the fear fell upon them and they began to glorify God? Perhaps she had a direct encounter with Jesus that we're not aware of. We just don't know. But these seem to be the actions of someone who has experienced the, the joy of cleansing and forgiveness. Um, a little bit more uh, cultural context around these meals. Um, there was common courtesy um, uh, that would happen upon the arrival of a guest. Every culture has it, right? Offer them a cup of tea. That's our common culture, our common courtesy, right? You haven't offered them a cup of tea? So what we see here is, is that as well. The common courtesy in this culture was upon the arrival of Jesus, the guest of the home, the host Simon was supposed, was supposed to put his hand on his shoulder and he would have kissed Jesus on either cheek uh, as this symbol of peace. Simon would have then taken himself or arranged for the feet of his guest to be washed. Um, remember, they just wore open sandals here. Their feet would be dirty. Um, and then oil or incense would be added simply as a fragrance of the, on, the, on the head of the individual who's arrived. Jesus is a human who, he's a man who lived before deodorant, he walked a lot, he was out in the sun a lot, he sweated a lot, Jesus stunk. He had B.O., he didn't he? He's a real person. And that was, that was the case here. So they would clean the person up. The guest is coming in, they're going to sit around this table, they're going to dine together. The common courtesy was, let me wash your feet, let me make you smell a little bit better here. And we see towards the end of the story that none of that had taken place. So we're not exactly sure why, 
this Pharisee invited Jesus to his house. Um, Maybe he was someone who just liked to dine with famous people. I get that. Kind of associate with uh, um, the high high profile guest. And maybe he had an agenda to catch Jesus out. The Pharisees loved doing that. Um, Maybe he was just curious about this man who is performing all sorts of miracles. Whatever the, the, the reason is, it's certainly unusual for the host not to go through with those rituals of common courtesy. Uh, but in, Jesus comes in anyway, and he reclines at the table. Uh, you can see in these, these pictures, um, you'd have people not sitting up like we would do. They would be lying down, uh, kind of reclining at a table, uh, leaning on one arm. The other arm is free to take bread, dip it into the wine. Um, this posture, their feet would be kind of back towards um, the courtyard, back towards the perimeter. And, and it's here that this woman shows up. Um, it's not uncommon for a lady to have uh, a vial of perfume around her neck made of alabaster. Makes sense of passages like this one. Uh, but this woman, she comes in and she's clearly determined to face down the stairs of contempt and unbelief. And she comes in prepared to be despised for the sake of what she's about to do. She's a woman of the streets. Um, I'm sure there's a hardness about her. She's been in uh, terrible, tricky situations. She's not afraid here. She's ready to do, to be despised for what she's about to do. And she comes in and she stoops at the feet of Christ to do for him what Simon the Pharisee so clearly failed to do. In verse 38, standing behind him at his feet, she's weeping. Um, This isn't a scene of mourning. There's nothing to suggest that this is a posture, that she's, um, um, uh, the tears are planned in any way. The perfume clearly was, but probably not the tears. And she comes at the feet of Christ, and in that moment, she begins to weep. And not just a little little weeping. Uh, She begins to gush so much that her tears are falling off of her face, and that they mingle with the dust and the dirt on Jesus' feet. Um, have you ever asked yourself, why? why is she crying? Why is she weeping so much? Um, Alistair Begg suggests she cries presumably because now she has come right into the very heart of the circumstances that are allowing her to do for this Jesus what she knew, she, what she knew for some days or some months now that she most clearly wanted to do. And that was somehow or another to make contact with him and to make it perfectly clear that she was amazed by his love, that she was overwhelmed by his goodness. And she simply wanted to slip in and do this and slip out, and she's caught off guard, and her emotions overwhelm her, and she begins to weep uncontrollably. Have you ever, begin to, have you ever like, been in a conversation and you didn't know you needed to cry and your voice begins to quiver and tears begin to come? That happens to me all the time, actually. Normally from up here. It's pretty embarrassing. Um, happened a number of weeks. My, pa- my, my pastor was here and I was going to introduce him and I didn't know, but I just ended up crying. And that's what seems to have happened here. You see her with her quivering hands. The perfume bottle now opened and being dispersed. Her tears are running down her face, dripping off of her nose. Um, It can't have been a pretty sight. Like someone who is sobbing, it's not pretty. It's disgusting. It's like there's there's normally snot. It's it's embarrassing. She was a mess. Uh, The tears aren't planned. She doesn't turn up with a towel. Um, So she does the unthinkable and she lets down her hair. Um, in the Talmud, a woman could remove her clothing and suffer no greater offense than the offense to the Jewish law of letting her hair down. Um, if, so, if she had taken off her dress, the impact wouldn't have been any more shocking than when she had let her hair down. So in this dinner scene, every social taboo has been broken in the silence and the awkwardness. She is a self-forgetful mess. Here in the presence of Jesus, she's overwhelmed with the thought of her guilt. Maybe also by the words that she had possibly heard him speak, the message that she had heard him preach. Maybe she heard the, the, the words that he spoke on the hillside to his disciples. He said, blessed are you who are poor, 
for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when you're, uh, who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So why would she cry? Um, I think she's overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus is making a way even for a sinner and outcast like her to be invited in. She's overwhelmed that after spending her entire life constantly being excluded, constantly being looked down upon, Jesus says she can now be included in his kingdom. This is scandalous from every aspect. And how does Jesus respond? He doesn't move away. He doesn't recoil. Even though his reputation is at stake, he lets her continue. Verse 39 says, When this Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. She is an absolute moral failure. If this man I invited here today really is the man that he claimed to be, then he would know who is touching him. And it's this, this kind of rude phrase. It's not just he'd know who is touching him. He'd know who is touching him. It's filled with insinuation and disgust. He would know who she is and what she is doing. But Jesus is happy to link his identity to hers, just as he is happy to link his identity with ours. Just before this story, in verse 34, Luke recounts the accusation that, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And instead of defending Jesus against this accusation, Luke goes straight into this story of this meal to show that it's actually true. So again, sometimes the Bible's most poignant when it agrees with Jesus' accusers. He is a friend of sinners. He actually does link his identity to reveal himself as this gracious Savior. He comes eating and drinking to show that sinners can now be part of his kingdom. Not the righteous like Simon, but sinners like this woman. The glorious Son of Man described in Daniel 7 is the gracious dinner companion of Luke 7. Um, quite often, God, uh, the grace of God turns out to be uncomfortable and embarrassing, doesn't it? The, the radical grace of Jesus, it disrupts our social situations. Uh, we don't like it. We don't like it in our homes. We certainly don't like it in our beautiful church, right? But the Son of God ate with sinners. He's not embarrassed by them. He lets them kiss his feet. He's a friend of the traitors, of the riffraff, of prostitutes, the mentally ill, the unrespectable, the marginalized. And ultimately, Jesus gave his life for them, for us. And just like we learned last week when Jesus says he's come to seek and to save the lost, he's not saying I've simply come to find you and to, to, to write off your punishment. He says I've come to die in your place. And he never, he never disagrees with the accusations that these outcasts are sinners. They are. They are absolute moral failures. They have rejected God, and they, have, they do deserve the wrath that is to come. But the grace of Jesus is that he's come to take that punishment away on himself. That's what makes the story of Jesus so beautiful, so outrageous. And... When they're calling Jesus a drunkard and a glutton at the beginning there, um, it's, it's this allusion to the Old Testament law that's found in Deuteronomy 21, 21, which describes uh, how a stubborn, rebellious son that will not obey the voice of his father, one that is a glutton and a drunkard, is to be stoned. Jesus, they're saying in verse 34, is a rebellious son of Israel. 
But Jesus, but, but we're told in verse 35, says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, you accuse me of this, but we will see who proves to be the rebellious child. And guess what? It isn't Jesus. <laughs> Jesus proves to be the faithful son, the, the faithful son of God. Israel itself is the rebellious son. But here's the irony of the story that even though Jesus is the faithful one, he still dies the death of the rebellious one. He's not stoned, but he's hung on a tree. He's hung on a cross. And that same passage in Deuteronomy that condemns a rebellious son, it also immediately declares that everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. That's what Jesus does. You and I are the rebellious son. But Jesus came to die that death for us. He dies the death of the rebellious drunkard son on our behalf. Isn't that incredible? It's not until here where Jesus finally, he, he finally breaks the silence. Imagine the scene up until now. This woman comes in. No one speaks a word while she is sobbing and, and wiping Jesus' feet. And finally Jesus breaks the silence. And he turns to Simon after reading his mind, after seeing his heart, and he breaks out a little parable to teach him. Jesus loves a parable. So verse 40 says, and Jesus answering him, answering his thoughts, he said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answers, say it, teacher. And Jesus says, now a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. A denarii is a uh, day's work, day's wages. So one owes about a year and a half, the other uh, about a month and a half. And he says, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. And then he asked Simon, now, which one of them will love him more? So you have two people who owe money, uh, one a smaller debt, one quite a large debt, but neither of them can pay. So if you can't pay a debt, you can't pay a debt, right? Um, no matter how big it is. But if someone cancels the large debt, your response will be a little bit different than if they cancel a smaller debt. Okay, so if I say to, to, to Nick, Nick, you owe me 50 quid, but don't worry about it. He'd be like, great. But if I say, Nick, your mortgage, don't worry about it. I've got it covered. That's going to be a different response, right? And that's what Jesus is saying to Simon. And he says, Simon, you understand that, don't you? When, when it's declared that they no, they no longer owe their debts, which of the people do you think will love the debt canceller the most? And I love Simon's response because he, he kind of knows Jesus has him. <laughs> he, I think he, he, the penny kind of drops because he says, well, I suppose the one whom the, the, who canceled the larger debt, suppose nothing, Simon. Like it's definitely the 500 sinner. They're both alleviated their debts. The larger sinner, for sure. The principle is simple here. If someone forgives you, you'll love them. If someone forgives you a lot, you'll love them a lot. And this woman understands it, Simon. You don't. She understands she's a 500 sinner. She cries. You don't. She washes. You don't. She anoints. You don't. Those who have been forgiven the most love the most. So the difference between Simon and this woman, you notice it's not just how they view Jesus. It's also how they view themselves. Simon has no sense of forgiveness for this woman because he has no sense of his need of forgiveness. But the woman, on the other hand, she has a strong sense of her brokenness. She knows her life is a mess. And she sees Jesus as someone who accepts her anyway. She has this overwhelming love for him, a love that risks social disgrace. And that goes for many of the greatest saints through history. Some of the greatest saints were also the greatest sinners, right? Like the Apostle Paul is the most obvious one. Nothing but uh, a common terrorist, and then the Lord saves him, and he becomes Paul. And... Um, the, uh, John Newton, he's a slave trader, but he goes on after being gripped by the love of Jesus to write Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He gets it. Augustine, the greatest theologian of the early church, 
was a mess. He wrote his confessions, which was like 13 books. That's a lot of, that's a lot of mess to confess in some ways. His work outlines his sinful youth and eventual coming to faith. And the first part of his life was an absolute train wreck. Just, just lust and brokenness. But eventually, Augustine saw what this woman saw. He was, he was broken by the fact that he too is a 500 denarii sinner whose debt has been wiped. And he went on to be the greatest theologian of the first 10 centuries of the church. Why? Because of the grace of God. Because God is a God of grace. And he does not push us away because we are dirty. He doesn't push us away from the table, but invites us in. Lets us come close. And look at verse 44. And there are two sides of this story. It's not only about a story of Jesus welcoming sinners, it's also a story of a sinner welcoming Jesus. And twice Luke tells us that the meal took place at the home of a Pharisee. He wants us to know that. That's the location. There's no doubt about where this is happening. This is Simon's house, which means Simon is the host, right? Is he? We talked about the common courtesy that would be shown to a guest being welcomed into a home, the greeting with a kiss, the washing of the feet, the anointing with oil, but Simon does none of this. He's the host who's not really the host. Instead, it's, it's this woman who's the host when she's not even a guest. She's not even invited. She's a gatecrasher. And Simon, uh, Jesus contrasts Simon's hospitality with hers in verse 44. He says, Simon, you gave me no water for my feet, but this woman has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time she came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. It's a little awkward, but you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. She was the one who welcomed Jesus, not Simon, and it's not even her house. He's saying, Simon, do you see this woman? I'm in your house, but she has been my host. And he goes on to say in verse 50 that her faith has saved her. So again, what she is doing is a response of faith to something she has heard or seen in Jesus. We aren't sure exactly what it is. Maybe she was listening to him preach the good news. Maybe she, she had seen him do something. She had or seen him, uh, heard him say something she had never heard before. Uh, Jesus telling people to forgive rather than to condemn. Maybe she spotted him eating with tax collectors, the, sum of, the scum of society. But there's a response to her here. And what's the difference between Simon and the woman? To, to the onlookers, it's, it's quite simple. One is a, res, a righteous, respectable man. And the other is a degraded, sinful woman who sells herself for money. They couldn't be more opposite. But Jesus sees things differently, doesn't he? He, he sees what kind of woman she is. He acknowledges her sins are many, like we sung this morning. He doesn't ignore her sin, but he sees her heart. He sees her faith. She's been forgiven. But he also sees Simon's heart. And the real shock is he's more disgusted by what he sees in Simon's heart than what he sees in the woman's heart. The woman wept. Simon judged. Simon's attitude towards this woman exposes his heart, right? And it's always like that, isn't it? Difficult people have a habit of exposing our hearts. And behavior always comes from the desires of our hearts. So whenever we look down on someone and judge them for being disorganized or lazy or emotional or promiscuous or socially inept, you are like graceless Simon. When we, if we look down on people who are not, for not understanding grace, for not getting it, we are like graceless Simon. If you're thinking right now about how this message, someone else really needs to hear it, you're probably like graceless Simon. Jesus says to us, if you look down on others, you love little because you understand so little of your sin and of my grace. 
Church, we desperately need to understand both the depths of our depravity, but also the heights of his grace, of his love. That's why we were able to sing that song this morning. Our sins are many, but his grace is more. The heights of his grace, the heights of his love, but also the depths of our depravity. We need to be like this woman. Be like this You're not going to hear many church messages say, be like the prostitute, but be like this woman who is melted and broken by God's amazing grace. It's only then will our lives truly point to Jesus and actually bring others into community with him. Um, So in closing, our our main two goals for observing this meal, um, reading this story helps us understand the gospel better, doesn't it? And it shows us the grace of Jesus, that he has come for the helpless. He has come for those who are broken, for those who are despised. It helps us see the gospel, but pardon the food pun, it also puts kind of meat on the bones, doesn't it? It, it, it shows us how to live out the gospel. Like the meal itself, the hospitality, the welcoming, the listening, the paying attention. They're, they're the means by which the gospel message is communicated and understood in our minds. But it's also a really great way to live out that gospel message as God's people. The, the meals, again, are not just symbols. They're also the application. They're not just pictures of the kingdom. They're the real thing in action. They're not just ideas. They're not just theories. They're not, they are actual social occasions that represent the kingdom on earth. They're the way we live it out because meals slow things down, don't they? Meals force us to be people-orientated rather than task-orientated. Sharing a meal, it's not the only way to build relationship, right? It's definitely number one, though, because it's impossible to remain, sorry, it is possible to remain at a distance from someone in public gatherings. You can be in this room with many people who you don't necessarily like. That's easy. But meals bring you close, don't they? You see people in situ, in, in, in real life, as they are, and you connect, and you communicate. Radical generosity leads to reconciliation. It, it expresses forgiveness, because unresolved Conflict cannot be ignored when you gather around a table, right? Have you ever been in that situation where you're, you're eating, but it's kind of silent because there's conflict? It's not comfortable, but it's necessary. And our church really began around the table. Our, our early days was filled with a lot of, in, of eating and drinking, We did a lot of that in our past. Lord willing, we will continue to do a lot of that into our future. I think it's something we need to rekindle after our kind of post-lockdown lives, right? That's why our missional communities, a family meal, it's it's not just, oh, this is something we can do. It's important. Get around a, a table with people. Look them in the eyes. Church's family. A lot of people like the idea of church's family. They like the idea of, of, of community. But when we eat together, we encounter not theoretical theoretical community we encounter real people with all their problems with all their quirks with all their brokenness don't we the meal table is an opportunity to give up our proud ideals by which we judge others and accept in their place the real community created by the cross of Christ with all of its brokenness It's easy to love people in some abstract sense. It's easy to stand up here and preach the virtues of love. But we're called to love real individuals sitting around a table. Bonhoeffer says, Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Let me read that again. Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but, reality, but, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Sometimes we have this ideal that it's going to be beautiful, like something out of a kinfolk magazine, like long tables, lights out the top, 
beautifully laid tables, but it usually doesn't. And we're not, we're not talking about entertainment. Please, please don't mix up hospitality with entertainment. Um, entertainment is, is fine, but it's different. And um, John Mark Comer, he, he says, there's nothing wrong with entertainment, but entertainment is sporadic. You schedule it out weeks in advance. It's an event on a calendar. Hospitality is a way of life. It's usually spontaneous. It's an open door policy. Entertainment is an act of reciprocity. I'll have you, you over and then we'll have you over. That's the Northern Irish way, right? Because uh, I'll get this one, you get the next one. Hospitality is an act of generosity. There's, you, you give and you expect nothing in return because the giving is itself the gift. Entertainment is the marker of stratification of society. You move up or down one party at a time. Whereas hospitality is about justice for the poor. Radically generous hospitality, it leads to collateral damage. It's messy. Food will be spilled on your carpet. And there'll be lots of clearing up to do. Sometimes mountains of dishes. Your cupboards will be decimated. Sometimes your bank account will be, quite, will be left quite empty. But that's okay because we remember that God invites us into his house by the blood of his own son. It's all worth it. The hospitality embodied by God, the hospitality of God embodied around the table fellowship of Jesus is a celebration and sign of his grace and generosity. And we as followers of Jesus are to imitate that generosity. So it's, it's not just a picture of the kingdom, it is the way of the kingdom in real life. And so, firstly, friends, do you see Jesus in the story? Do you see his grace on display? He came to draw near to the marginalized, the outcast, those who recognize their sin, those who are desperate for his grace. Have you recognized that yet? Are you more like Simon the Pharisee, or are you more like this woman? Be like this woman who sees Jesus and she sees her brokenness, her own sinfulness, and she is blown away by his grace. She is blown away by his forgiveness and his love. That's the kind of faith that Jesus is after in you. And if you have recognized that, if you have received that salvation joyfully, are you living the way of his kingdom? Are, 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 you, are you living a new life in him? Are you like your Savior, living a life of radically generous hospitality? Are you drawing near to the sinner? Not just those who have social status. Uh, although they need, to, to, they need love, they need to hear the gospel as well. Not just those who you enjoy being around the table, but are you eating and drinking with sinners? Are you eating and drinking with, with those who might tarnish your reputation? What if, what if our church recaptured this in our community? What if this was our main way, not the only way, but our main way to extend the grace of Jesus to our friends and family in our communities? Um, to close, I'll leave you with a, a quote from Rosario Butterfield. Um, if you don't know who she is, uh, she was a far-left radical lesbian feminist uh, who was a tenured professor at Syracuse University with a specialty in postmodern critical theory and literature, so not exactly the prime candidate for the Jesus story, right? And she was, she was uh, at the time, writing a book essentially about how Bible-believing Christians are just the worst, um, how, how we are a threat and a menace to society. And as part of her research, she had to actually meet a few Bible-believing Christians. And she, she had written this article in the New York Times um, that was this scathing indictment on a men's conference. And a local pastor wrote a letter in that was a gracious response. And, and with it came this invitation to dinner. And, and she thought, 
well, maybe this is a good opportunity to do some research. And so she went over and, and she writes about driving over to his house and sitting in her car and thinking, what am I doing? Why am I going in here? This man is the enemy. Uh, he, he, he is everything that I think is awful, everything I'm against. And, and then she walks through the front door and she writes about experiencing hospitality, experiencing love, love expressed as welcome over a meal. And this changed her life. And she went back again and again for another meal, for another meal, and another meal. And then eventually she came to a Bible study in a small group in a church gathering. And long story short, she's now married to a Reformed Presbyterian pastor. Um, She's a foster parent, and they run a Christian commune out of her home. Um, and, And I think one of the messages of her books is the LGBT community does a far better job at hospitality than the church. And so we need to recapture this aspect of the kingdom of Jesus. Our church um, has been great at this in the past, um, but in our kind of post-pandemic recovering lives, let us not forget the way of Jesus. Not forget that Jesus came eating and drinking with sinners around a table. I'll leave you with her quote. She said, Radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as the family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. They know they are like meth addicts and sex trade workers. They take their own sin seriously, including the sin of selfishness and pride. They take God's holiness and goodness seriously. They use the Bible as a lifeline with no exceptions. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Would you stand with me and we'll pray.